Uh, this is just happening right now. I think you guys probably saw this walking in, but Diane Feinstein has passed away. I know. I mean, really sad news. She had an incredible run and was a, just a major figure and a breakthrough figure as a woman in yeah. the Senate and uh, as um, someone who had a powerful voice on many issues, particularly gun control, against torture. She was fantastic. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, we've talked about this on the show. I mean, this, this, the sad thing is that in, in some ways her exit is overshadowing a tremendous career that she had. It won't, it won't be like this forever, but right now, I mean, immediately it turns to mm. um, big political stakes about yeah. what's going to happen with this seat and California. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it, this is also a reminder, isn't it, that kind of the age when senators were— Household names across the country uh, is is fading, and we're in this different, much more contentious era of politics. You know, it's interesting because Diane Feinstein was this liberal Democrat from San Francisco. She's literally the mayor of San Francisco at a time when national Republicans demonized the city. Uh, doing that again, yeah. Now, but. Nonetheless, it was a different era, right? And I do think that I don't know that there will be senators like this twenty years from now. It is amazing. I mean, honestly, just thinking about the span of her career, you know, she, after all, took office in a moment that made people think about gun control in a way that really hadn't. She was obviously sort of uh, her career kind of came out of the this uh, tragic murder in San Francisco. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. And then... I mean, I think if you're if you're thinking about the moments of her life, you have to think about the speech that she gave about torture. History will judge us by our commitment to a just society governed by law and the willingness to face an ugly truth and say never again. I mean, that was a a pretty bold moment for anybody and for her to kind of stand up to the CIA. Yeah, she really she confronted powerful uh, interests, I think across the board in Washington. And that was uh, something really remarkable. <laughs> I remember the very first, quote, year of the woman, right, uh, when Feinstein and others were just coming to Washington. It was seen as almost this unthinkable breakthrough that California would elect two women senators at the same time. Mm. Can you imagine that, right? Like, it was no problem to elect two male senators from every single state forever, but it was right. big, big news I when mean, that happened. Just on the torture issue, I know, I know personally that she struggled with doing the right thing mm. because um, she worried about what effect it would have on national security if she criticized the CIA's program of so-called, you know, enhanced interrogation. And at one point, she actually called me up to have a lunch with really? her about it. Wow. And um, we, we talked about it, and she said, well, what would you do if, the, if, if we let out these national security secrets and show pictures of what's happened to these detainees, and there are riots around the world that kill maybe Americans in embassies, Who's responsible? And we we sort of went around and round at, uh, at lunch over it. And I, I remember arguing that um, you know this is what makes America strong: this kind of transparency. And she she it's not because of me, but she went with it on her own instincts, and then commissioned a study that laid out the guts of that program in a way that was incredible. I mm. mean, um, and you know, more power to her for doing that. 
I, I, you know, but the, of course, you know, the other issue that we're dealing with here is this age issue, though. I mean, staying too long, maybe, and the gerontocracy issue. Look, look it's creating chaos. This is going to be a chaotic chapter now. Yeah. Well, it's hanging over the conversation we're going to have today. But by any measure, uh, it's the end of a of a giant career. Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Evan Osnos, and I'm joined, as ever, by my colleagues Susan Glasser and Jane Mayer. Good morning to you both. Thank you so much, Evan. Great to be here. Hi, Evan. We have a potential government shutdown on the horizon, and it feels like Washington was trying to fit in a month's worth of news into just the past few days. But at its core, this flurry of activity and chaos, let's call it what it is, marked an important threshold because it seemed like the first week, in effect, that the Biden presidency truly clashed with the MAGA wing of the GOP. It's a fight that will have implications beyond what happens with the funding of the government. This is going to hang over the uh, the months to come. But for the moment, the Biden administration is confident that any attempt to shut down the government or or bring an impeachment is going to backfire against Republicans. But the White House is also not letting the larger meaning of this moment go, in effect, undescribed. And you had Biden uh, just yesterday lay out the stakes as he sees them as really nothing less than the future of American democracy. Seizing power, concentrating power, attempting to abuse power, purging and packing key institutions, spewing conspiracy theories, spreading lies for profit and power to divide America in every way, inciting violence against those who risk their lives to keep America safe, weaponizing against the very soul of who we are as Americans. This MAGA threat is a threat to the brick and mortar of our democratic institutions. It's also a threat to the character of our nation. And I want to start right there with Biden's remarks in Arizona on Thursday. Uh, Susan, obviously we've heard a number of these kinds of phrases from him before for good reason over the last few years. But clearly he saw that this was a moment to draw a finer point on it. What do you think is the message that he is seeking to convey in a speech like that right now? Yeah, no, that's a that's a hell of a list, isn't it? I it's a hell of a mm. list. And that's the thing about Donald Trump is that the challenge that he poses to our system, to the democracy itself has actually only escalated over the years rather than diminished. And blowing past the barriers and the guardrails in our system, of course, as long as people go with him, that has given him and fueled this power. So throughout Biden's presidency, he's been challenged. He's taken different tacks. He's attacked Trump and Trumpism uh, at times, as he did in launching his 2020 campaign. But then he's tried to revert to being what we might say is a normal politician. And, you know, the last few months, while he's been struggling in the polls, Biden has reverted to what you might call normal politician. He has been making a series of speeches around the country, uh, trying to brand the economy as Bidenomics, which has turned out to be a really questionable decision at a moment when Americans, there are objective signs of an economic recovery and strengths, a very low unemployment, uh, job creation, all those things. And yet, this enormous sense of insecurity, uh, 
post-pandemic hangover, inflation that continues to hit people every time they go to the supermarket. So normal politician moment seems to be at least temporarily on hold. Biden is in is in a real crisis right now as well, and I think that's part of the context. Jane, I don't think I've ever heard a president feel the need to say in the course of a speech, I stand for the peaceful transfer of power, um, but that's actually what's required at the moment. I mean, it was a, it was pretty fascinating. What did you make of it? Well, I'm worried about one thing. Looking at the papers this morning, at least the papers that arrived at our house, he's not even on the front page with this mm. speech. This is the problem, as I see it partly, is these issues are the most important issues in front of the country right now, um, the, the the future of democracy and whether um, this country can, you know, fight off this autocratic threat from Trump. Yet, it's really hard to frame it and mm. hard to get people's attention for it. It's such a big subject. Um, I mean, and you take a look at the debate. By the, the way, I love that you were like the papers that have arrived at mm. our house. Because <laughs> right. Jane, like me, is a, a, a physical newspaper household. Uh, I was we thinking. Three. What, I think this is, uh, we three. We might be we the, get enti- two. the entire It was wet this morning from the rain. Yeah. We get three. I think. Oh, all right. Well, now we're showing off. So, you know, it worked for Biden last time. Um, that framing it as a choice about defending democracy in America and real the tradition of, of government in America. And it, it it's what got him elected in part. It worked in the 2022. Um, midterm elections, um, this where where people were um, fighting against uh, MAGA candidates who were um, basically saying that the election was stolen or whatever else. Um, most of those candidates lost. Yeah. Um, but whether this can save Biden in this election is 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 really I think a question. And and this actually to that point, Jane and Susan, there is a, a really interesting detail of what he's trying to do. And you heard him say in the speech that most Republicans don't, as he said, adhere to the extremist MAGA ideology. But there's no question that today's Republican Party is driven and intimidated by MAGA Republican extremists. Their extreme agenda, if carried out, would fundamentally alter the institutions of American democracy as we know it. Look, one of the big points here is where is he making the speech? And he's flown out to Arizona mm. uh, to announce and to be alongside uh, Cindy McCain, the wife of the late Republican senator from Arizona, John McCain. McCain ran against Joe Biden on the national ticket in 2008, right? Joe Biden was the vice presidential nominee against McCain. Yet they maintained this friendship. This is this is what American politics Used to be. Mm. And it's interesting because I think there's a great danger in, you know, nostalgizing American politics. The good old days, you know, weren't necessarily so good. But, <laughs> you know, it is also true that a sign of our present crisis is the inability to have a politics that works. And a politics that works in a divided country is a politics in which people of differing points of view from differing parts of the country can work together on that which they agree on, not on that which they disagree about. And I think that that's the point that Biden is making with this as well. And yet what we've seen is a Republican Party that is captured, as he pointed out, by this 
extreme. By the way, it's not an extreme minority of the Republican Party anymore. Maybe in the House of Representatives, maybe it is. But more broadly speaking, if you look at the polls right now of the Republican primary race, Donald Trump running away with it well over half, really two-thirds or more of the Republican Party uh, are now, I think, and can be said to be adherents to the cult of Donald Trump. Uh, That is the only conclusion after now this is the third presidential election in which Donald Trump is running to be the Republican candidate. And the bottom line is we're looking at about maybe 20, 25 percent of the Republican primary electorate that is not Trumpist. Uh, And, you know, that's pretty small. Mm. I mean, I think of, you know, two things about Arizona and McCain here. One is uh, in one of the, the best moments, at least from my standpoint, about McCain was during the 2008 presidential election when a, a woman, he was in a, in a rally, said that, that Obama was not an American yeah. and that maybe he was Muslim and foreign. And McCain stood up to her and no. said, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. He's a, he's, a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. Looking at the opposition as legitimate, knocking down lies um, and disinformation and hate um, and ignorance, that was the John McCain that I think was at his best, and, and, it, and it really means something. And the other thing to say about Arizona, of course, is it's in play. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking about 2024, and it's going to come down to, what, five or six battleground states, and Arizona is a state that, that Biden won by 11,000 votes, you know, it, it, incredibly close, and the, the election deniers have been denying the legitimacy of that win ever since in Arizona. So it's a hotbed of sort of this kind of MAGA lying. Doug Ducey, who was the Republican governor of Arizona at the time, did not. And as in Georgia, what you had is a Republican governor and, you know, other Republican state officials who stood up and said, I should say the former Republican governor because there's been an election, but who stood up and said, no, this is not true. It's not been uh, uh, the case. And in fact, he has testified (laughs) on uh, this point. Uh, to federal officials, and he has—I noticed that uh, he even co-sponsored a fundraiser for Chris Christie, who was running in the Republican primary as literally the uh, sort of lone, truly anti-Trump candidate in the Republican primary. Well, you've got like Carrie Lake and Andy Biggs and some of the people who lost. Who lost. Right. I mean, Biggs is, So, And I do think that Georgia and Arizona are examples of what Biden is trying to encourage, which is this notion— that it's possible to fight back within the Republican Party against MAGA. And if anyone would have done it, of course, John McCain in the final years of his life was essentially the leading Republican opponent to Donald Trump. And that Mm. was something that since he died tragically in Trump's presidency, you haven't seen anyone else emerge really to take up the banner. In fact, right, remember the great running subplot tragedy of the Trump years was that John McCain's Republican wingman, Lindsey Graham, turned into this incredible sycophant. In a way, they are the story of the Republican Party over this last few years, right? Oh, you, the McCain dies and Lindsey Graham it's a Collapse great point. Convert Symb- yeah. symbolically. That is McCain the was the last of the Republicans who would stand up to Trump in some ways, though. I mean, unless you count Romney. There was a moment in this speech, in this 
vein of sort of thinking about the values of the party and when did the MAGA wing kind of um, begin to emerge and take dominance. There, he, Biden talked about the idea that that Trump has called people who served in the armed forces suckers and losers. Remember, this was a famous moment <laughs> in which he talked about people who were buried at the World War One cemetery in in uh, in France. Um, but he was also talking about McCain because in, in some ways, when I look back on this whole period, I think of that moment when Donald Trump, the candidate, said of John McCain, who, of course, had been a POW, that he preferred people who hadn't been captured. That was a moment. It was a real uh, a, a sort of a, a parting of the paths yep. because yep. the assumption was this will drive Donald Trump out of politics. It's so grotesque what he just said. It's so abhorrent to how we think of ourselves as a, as a political society that he can't survive. And not only did he survive, he then went on to dominate the party. And I think that was the moment in some ways when the whole sort of MAGA idea uh, began to ascend to where we ultimately have Crossing ended up. Crossing what we perceive to be the guardrails and the barriers in American politics and surviving becomes your superpower. Mm. And that is what, you know, that was a template that we've now seen used again and again by Trump. But uh, interestingly about this question of ideology, I do think it's worth noting that perhaps John McCain, the senator, John McCain, the conservative Republican politician from a different era, I'm not sure how he would have felt about uh, Joe Biden flying out to Arizona and saying, I'm going to take more than $80 million in leftover COVID money in taxpayer funds, essentially an earmark, and put that towards the building of a new John McCain library. John McCain, uh, before he had to be a crusader for democracy against Donald Trump, was a crusader against things like earmarks in American politics because oh, he thought I that it was know. corrupt. I don't know, Susan. I think there's a little asterisk on the, you know, conservatives against government spending that says, except for my presidential library. Right. And, um, but, but, you know, Jane, or the point I'm making is that ideology my... <laughs> is dead yeah. and that, in fact, what's happened is that this incredible kind of almost existential threat <laughs> came into American mm. politics, and it sort of subverted what we might call the m more normal differences of American politics. It was another moment this week that I think would be easy to get lost in the shuffle, but I want to make sure that we, we acknowledge the significance of this, that Biden joined a United Auto Workers picket line in Michigan. That's fascinating. First time a president's ever done it. Jane, what do you think sort of prompted that Tripped. How do you think that fits into his campaign strategy? And okay, his well, prospects? we have, I mean, it's very parallel in a lot of ways. Yet, yet another battleground state. Uh, Michigan is, is going to be key in the 2024 election. And, and, and yet another very key constituency of voters that he's got to win. If you look at Arizona as trying to win over moderate Republicans to the extent that they exist, pull them out of the MAGA wing, you could look at, at Michigan. And you, the Democratic Party has lost a lot of support in working class voters um, and trying to win over uh, labor, um, people who belong to unions, and um, people who are in manufacturing and on the line um, is 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 really important. So, I mean, this was a a move of Joe Biden trying to show where his heart is and where he hopes his votes are coming from. 
also, I think in a way, what one of the things that was most interesting was to see the contrast with Trump here, mm. because you know Trump has posed yeah. as someone who is a populist and representing the working man. But what does he do when he goes to Michigan? He goes to a non-union shop at the invitation of the boss. There are people at that event carrying signs saying, "I'm you know an auto worker and I'm a union auto worker." They were neither. When the Detroit News did a little mm. poking into it, it turned out they were just carrying the signs. Um, and and Trump, if you look at his his record, it was um, really anti labor in terms of the the National Labor Relations Board people that he put on, and look at at the the record of the Supreme Court justices that he chose. Right, but the problem is, Jane, that nobody looks at his record, and the problem is that people don't. Unfortunately, Trump's appeal is not based on you know, an objective assessment of here's uh, my plans for the country and here's my ideology. He has, in a way that, you know, is familiar going all the way back, say, to Ronald Reagan, where he had two terms, very conservative policies that were not supported by the majority of Americans, and yet they loved Ronald Reagan. And now you have a situation where it's not actually a question of Donald Trump trying to win the working class white voters who are, he already has them. But the message that Biden is sending is to key parts of the Democratic constituency. He has to have come out. And I think that actually the Michigan Democratic Party is, is sort of the template for what Biden hopes to do in, in a lot of places around the country in 2024, which is uh, to appeal to sort of more targeted slices. First of all, unions are extremely popular among the kind of uh, young white progressives uh, mm. that he needs to get a lot more enthusiastic. So he's in big trouble uh, with those young voters right now. And of course, they are a key part of the Democratic constituency. So that's one. Number two, there's a ton of uh, black labor union households and working Americans. Again, Biden's numbers aren't as strong with those voters who have been absolutely core to the identity of the modern Democratic Party, to the voting constituency. I think that this trip was a lot about that. Uh, number three, you have just uh, showing up. And, you know, Scranton Joe, Union Joe, he is a big believer in that kind of politics. And remember that back in 2016, there were three states, uh, essentially, that gave Donald Trump the presidency, and Michigan was one of them. And I have talked, as I'm sure you have, to many Democrats in Michigan who believe it was political malpractice. And Hillary Clinton literally did not show up in Michigan in the immediate run-up to the election, she lost only by a few thousand votes, a few thousand votes that possibly a big rally and a real presence uh, there in the final days could have made a difference. What yeah. do you think, Evan? You're, you're, you, well, you talk to the Bidenites a lot. I mean, what, what do you do you think it was a hard choice for him to make about whether to show up there on no, the picket I, line? No, I, I don't, actually. I think this is something that is, that is more core to his identity than people generally appreciate, is that he calls himself, and the labor movement tends to agree, that he's the most pro- union president that we've had in modern times. It's a it's a it's a it's a significant piece of his identity and his politics. I mean, I I have to say that we at the same time that you know we're considering whether the Republican base is going to acknowledge the difference and the reality of who is actually standing up for workers. Look, we have to recognize that 
American voters, as we all know, are responsive to economic conditions. And if we're going to say that they're going to be affected by the hangover of inflation, we have to acknowledge that some number of these workers are paying enough attention to this to recognize that one of these two candidates, Donald Trump, is getting up there and saying, not only is he appearing at a non-union shop, he's also saying, by the way, you're all going to be out of work because of batteries eventually. So he's the, the, the sort of degree of contempt that he has for actual <laughs> workers is profound. And I think that is, uh, you know, let's remind ourselves, the <laughs> the pundit class got a whole lot wrong in 2022 in the midterm elections about what people did and did not believe. And I think we should be prepared for the idea that people are actually beneath the surface of their frustrations about Joe Biden and the sort of continued polling support for for Donald Trump, that actually people are ready for uh, for moving on from the, to use the word of the week on Donald Trump, the fantasies associated with his politics. It's a word that came up in this court ruling in New York City about the fraudulence in his business. The fantasy of Donald Trump is the persistent, most durable fact about him. (laughs) You know, Donald Trump has been selling the fantasy uh, ever since he entered public life uh, in in the 1980s. So this is not a new phenomenon. What's amazing is the durability and power of it. And that judge's decision, I highly recommend reading it. It really (laughs) was a unique document in American politics. It's finally—it's so satisfying Mm -hmm. because it finally is— a, for, a form of a cement wall he's hit. You know, you talk about the guardrails. He's gone through all the guardrails, but wow, wham, he hit the wall on that one, and we'll see whether it holds, but but it, it, it really was a form of accountability. I, I got to say, the other thing that, that he's selling in this fantasy is it's not a happy fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's fear. What he's telling these workers is you're going to lose your job. China's going to take it. They're going to make electric vehicles. You're out of, out of a job. You know, stick with me. I'm the only hope you've got. Um, he, he he's he's selling fear as yeah. usual and dividing people. And I have to tell you, let's remind ourselves. You know, he he's selling it. He's he's the id. He's all these things. He's also losing. He's lost in 2018, 2020, 2022. Um, let's keep that in the front of our minds. Right. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're gonna we're gonna look at the politics of a potential government shutdown and the mounting divisions inside the GOP. All right, folks, so what actually does a government shutdown look like in D.C. and in the rest of the country? Who? Let's put this at the very, very front of this discussion. Who is affected most by this? Yeah, look, it's real people. Uh, mm. First of all, it's not only the hundreds of thousands of workers in the federal government who not only won't go to work, but they won't get their paychecks. Uh, but it's also people who are affected by things like sending home hundreds and hundreds of air traffic controllers around the country or not being able to get checks that they rely on or not being able to access government services or go to national parks. And, you know, I'm so struck. There was a quote by uh, a Republican congressman, part of this, as I've called it, the the nihilist faction or the, the toddler caucus on Capitol Hill who are pushing forward with this uh, shut down for, for no real apparent reason. And he said, and it was so remarkable, this conversation, he said, you know, 
Nobody cares about these people. Uh, nobody cares about the government mm. anyways. It's a good thing that we're doing because the government doesn't do anything good. And I thought, what an ignorant remarkable statement. And you would think, uh, right, if the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and trying to get and imagining that you'll get different results, well, (laughs) Republicans have tried this play over and over and over again ever since, you know, Newt Gingrich sort of inaugurated the modern era of the government shutdown back in the 1990s. It failed for him politically and backfired on him. It's backfired again and again, including of course, on Donald Trump, who, when he was president in late 2018 and early 2019, presided over the longest shutdown in uh, American history, nearly 35 days. Uh, And at the end of that period of time, he didn't get a single one of the things that had caused him to go for the shutdown in the first place. And yet here we've had Donald Trump to connect the dots on our two conversations. He's the loudest public cheerleader for this government shutdown. He is egging on this group of nihilists in the House of Representatives. He is saying, shut it down. If you don't get everything you want, shut it down. Well, of course, there's something he wants from a shutdown, which he would like to shut down the prosecutions (laughs) that are coming after him. So um, there's a little bit of self-interest in that. And he's actually— By the way, it's not going to work, we should point out. That's one thing that will Will continue is criminal prosecutions. I think there are other aspects of the court system, as I understand it, that are hanging in the balance. Maybe not the criminal cases, but certainly other ones. And just, you know, uh, uh, countless, countless ways this hurts ordinary people all over the country. Um, you know, when the, the congressman you mentioned, I think it must be Bob Good from Virginia who was saying that. You kind of wonder, okay, you hate government? Why did you go into yeah. it then, you know? Um, but it's, you know, this is the, this is what you reap from a 40 years worth of, of far-right conservative libertarian movement funded by billionaires that has be, d- demonized the idea of government and made it seem like something other than our self-government, which yeah. is, you know, what, what it really is. I mean, I have to wonder, I mean, Trump, interestingly, is arguing that a shutdown will hurt Biden. He says in his tweets or whatever you want to call them, his exes, that that they always blame the president in charge. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 I think, um, mm. you know, we'll see if that's so. I mean, it seems like I think the Democrats have done a pretty good job of putting the blame on this, what Susan calls the toddler caucus. They're kind of like juvenile. They may have grown up to become juvenile delinquents. That's what (laughs) they kind of remind me of. But this small group that's kind of taken uh, the House hostage, this far-right group. It was interesting to hear how Biden talked about the shutdown. A couple days ago, it was actually quite notable, his comments, because the very first thing he mentioned is that this will have disproportionate effects on the black community. As he said, particularly black women and children who receive nutritional assistance, 7 million people. And then on top of it, in communities that are affected by, uh, disproportionately affected by environmental risks of industrial production and things like that, frontline communities, uh, the EPA is going to be shut down in this period. So there are ways in which this is visited upon precisely the people that somebody like Congressman Good from Virginia is not thinking about. And I think that's at the core of how the White House is trying to focus attention. I have to tell you, just on a personal basis, it was 10 years ago, almost to the day, that I started work in Washington. And the very first day I started work in Washington, the government shut down. And it was... 
Ted Cruz's shutdown. Let's not uh, allow him to go unmentioned in the history of this stuff. And what was a fascinating, and I have to say, a bleak measure uh, in my memory of it was that really nobody benefited from that experience except Ted Cruz. He ended up writing, believe it or not, a children's book about shutting down the government. And for a while, it was the single most popular children's book on Amazon. By the way, we should refer to him now as podcaster Ted Cruz. Although he remains in the Senate, his leading identity is that he's created this podcast that that speaks to a large audience of his conservative followers. And to your point, this is a Republican Party that has lost seven of the last eight presidential elections in the popular vote. Seven last eight. That's an extraordinary—in the the sweep of American history, that's one of the longest losing streaks that we've had going. Has that caused Republicans to abandon extremism, to seek to find a majority of Americans who want to vote for their candidates? No. In fact, they've gone in the other direction, which is appealing more and more to an extreme whose views are such anathema to a majority of Democratic— and independent voters that, in fact, it's less likely and less likely that they will achieve a majority of the popular vote. I think a lot of this crisis that we're seeing is a crisis of weakness, of weakness of institutions and weakness of individuals. Donald Trump happens to be very gifted at playing on the weaknesses of others. But certainly that's the story in the House of Representatives, the incredible weakness of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It's Uh, In a way, the story of a president like Biden, who not only has the inherent kind of weaknesses of being constrained by divided government, but also it's a real weakness in American politics when two-thirds of the country doesn't want you to run for re-election. It is a weakness. You don't have the strong hand that a really popular president supported by a large majority of the country has. Uh, The weakness of the unpopularity of our institutions, the media, certainly the political parties, trust in almost everything is down. Even the military, we can talk about that. Even things that were once the pillars of our society, people don't trust them. It's weakness. But, you know, at the same time, I actually, no, I think you have to also acknowledge the strength. Because, look, we are talking on the very week that Mark Milley is leaving at the end of what has by any measure, been an extraordinarily challenging and heroic tenure. That's just the only word you can use to describe it. I mean, the the Atlantic has an important piece, I think, that captures the fact that this is the guy who stood up to what Donald Trump was trying to do in subverting the election. And I, I think we it's worth noting strength where we see it. And I would say at the same time, look, yes, you're right. Biden is facing two-thirds of the country who doesn't approve of what he's doing, and yet he's he's also standing up against what Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine. Look, I'm not making the case uh, for him except to say that I think we make a choice as a culture about whether we focus on the ways in which it is about weakness or the ways in which we also see strength out there. And I think it's frankly sort of part of our responsibility to say, you know, no, let's actually point out when people are doing the good, right thing. You mentioned Mark Milley. And I have to say, having spent a lot of time and you know written a book about this, I don't think the takeaway from this story about Donald Trump and his assault on the independence of the military is a story about strength. It's a story, as is the story of 2020 and Trump at large, it's a story of something that Milley and and the other generals, uh, according to our reporting, said to each other, which is it was a very close-run thing. 
And that was the famous phrase that uh, uh, when Wellington, after <laughs> the Battle of Waterloo, when he wrote to a friend and he was being congratulated on this historic victory, the defeat of Napoleon, and he said, no, it, actually, it was, it was a very, very mm. near-run thing. The story of Trump and his effort to overturn the 2020 election is a story of a small number of individuals uh, who made the right choice. People uh, very morally, in, in some ways, compromised people like Vice President Mike Pence, uh, like uh, some of the Republican appointees at the Justice Department, the acting attorney general and some of his advisors. It's, it's a story about Mark Milley, uh, who was Trump's own appointee, by the way, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And it's about individuals standing up to Trump because the institutions actually potentially could have gone the other way if there were different people. It is a story in many ways about how close we came and how we were just one vice president, one attorney general, one chairman of the Joint Chiefs away. Uh, but I thought... To, to close on this point, right, so Millie makes this incredible decision after the very embarrassing humiliation of Lafayette Square when he is sort of co-opted into wearing his uniform and marching across in Donald Trump's photo op uh, uh, amid the Black Lives Matter protests, and he thinks about resigning, and he wrote this letter that we obtained, and he said, it is my belief that you— Donald Trump, were doing great and irreparable harm to my country. I believe that you have made a concerted effort over time to politicize the U.S. military. I thought I could change that. I've come to the realization that I cannot, and I need to step aside and let someone else try it. Now, he didn't ultimately resign. Lucky for us, he did not. Exactly. But, right. but the politicization of the military, yeah. the campaign against the quote-unquote woke military, a fiction created in the new in the minds of Fox News producers and Donald Trump's Twitter feed. Four years later, millions more Americans believe that now than did in 2020. There's been a campaign and an assault on the integrity and the credibility of our institutions because that is the goal of this movement. It is to tear down any possible guardrails that could stop uh, essentially an authoritarian minority from coming to power. Well, okay. This is all very terrifying, but I would like to bring up one counter indicator that I take as an optimistic point that mm. was um, written about by the New York Post, which is that Melania Trump <laughs> is renegotiating her prenuptial agreement, which suggests that country. she sees there might be trouble for Donald Trump's finances Somebody ahead, and she wants to get her piece of the action. So I just, Maybe she thinks he's going to win again, though, and she doesn't, you know, if she's going to have to be first lady again. So I think, just saying. So Somebody this, always benefits, Jane. I think That's this, not a counterindicator. It it's a, it's an example of people always— uh, <laughs> It suggests she knows there's trouble in paradise. Well, I think the through line from the very beginning of this conversation to the end is that uh, the individual moral calculations and fiber of the people in power matter. And institutions and individuals are in this constant contest. And uh, it is a hard week, but I am so grateful for the chance to be able to talk about it with you. A little bit of therapy for, this, uh, for the three of us. <laughs> uh, thank you, Jane, and thank you, Susan. Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Susan. Uh, well, here we go.
This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Evan Osnos. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll be back next week. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>